0: And welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Well, I'm doing all right.
1: How are you? Well, I am doing all right. Also, I'm doing pretty okay, and that's a okay with me. <laughs> yeah, that sometimes is the best you can hope for. There you go. That was that was a little (laughs) down, but I get it. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, I mean, we're here. (laughs) Yeah, you
0: know, you you win some, you lose some. I don't know that I'm winning this week, (laughs) but there are brighter days ahead. I have faith that there are going to be better days than than today. So
1: that's where we're at. You know,
0: and that's okay, right? I'm sure there's a lot of people in that boat. Everybody's getting a little star crazy, and uh, you know, things are just not the same as they were a month and a half ago. So yeah, I feel like it's going to be fine, though.
1: Absolutely, I'm with you a hundred percent. You sound like me a week ago. I'm I've had a little bit of a brighter day today. We're just switching <laughs> off. Why?
0: Yeah. Why should we both yeah. be
1: happy at the same time? <laughs> I'm just
0: kidding. So before we get into the episode this week, uh, Melissa, do we want to tell everybody about this fun new contest that we are going to be doing?
1: I absolutely do want to tell everyone about this contest. Or you can. I don't care. I just mean we want to tell everyone because it's super exciting. Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'll go for it. <laughs> okay, so if you guys have heard in our uh, recent episodes, we have a sponsor by the name of Skylight. And Skylight has these really cool frames um, where you can email pictures directly to the frame. This isn't an ad for them, but we really love them. They're really, really cool. Mandy has one. I bought one for my mother-in-law and my mom. And you send pictures of your kids or whatever to this frame, and it's a beautiful frame. <laughs> I'm I've, Again, sound like I'm trying to sell it. But really, we want to give one away way to you guys. So we um, are purchasing one and we're going to mail it to a lucky winner. And the way to enter into the contest, which I should have just written this out word for word um, instead of just notes to myself, is to send us to actually uh, this week when we share our show notes, our, our not our show notes, when we share like the poster that Mandy makes every week, if you will share it with your friends on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, whatever, send us a screenshot that you've shared it. We've tried this before on Facebook. And if you have a private page, it says like 50 people shared this. And we can only see three of you because the rest of you are keeping it locked down. And so we can't see your names. So if you will take a screenshot of that, email it to us at lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com and put the word contest in the subject line. And you will be entered to win a free skylight frame. This is us doing it. This is not skylight doing it. We just wanted to do this for you guys. We think it's super cool and a really great gift for Mother's Day. So the contest is going to end this Sunday, May 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So get those emails in to us before then. And we're going to do a live drawing, I assume on Facebook probably. We haven't figured that part out, but Sunday at 9 p.m. And we will email the winner to let them know that they have won and we will purchase the skylight frame and have it mailed off to you. So Patreon, we're going to have a note in there for you guys as well. Um, doing it a little bit different in there. So yeah, so just email it to us, do a screenshot, email it to us, uh, contest in the subject line, last thing before we go at gmail.com. I'll put it in the show notes as well. It ends May 3rd this Sunday at 5 p.m. because we just thought of this idea this week and we want to get it to you by Mother's Day. And so that's what we're going to do. And we really hope you like it. Hope you enter. Super easy to do, I think. And we can't wait to get this to somebody. It is the coolest gift and totally something a mom, especially, I think would really, really love.
0: Yes, it's so cool. Um, we both have now had the experience of trying the skylight frame. And it's just awesome. And I love it so much. So yeah, I'm really excited to give one away. And it is super easy. All you're doing is sharing the episode artwork from this episode and just sending us the proof that you did that. So yeah, so we hope we get a lot of entries. I'm really excited. I hope we um, I'm excited to give one of these really cool
1: things. Me away. too. Yeah, super cool.
0: Okay, so getting into um, the story, the case for this week, um, you may have noticed that we have been covering a lot of different types of stories lately. And this week, we actually have something that we have never had before on our show. Although there was potential for several deaths due to this crime, thankfully, nobody was killed. But the story is super fascinating. And it really does sound like the plot of a really good action movie and one that I would picture having Bruce Willis and Steven Seagal. Uh, At least that's what I think of when I think of this story I don't know if you thought of any actors that would play in these roles Melissa but those were the two that came to my mind
1: well I like those um, Steven Seagal though I always think he's like a legit officer in I think New Orleans now which is totally weird like you could be arrested by Steven Seagal at oh. any point in time oh wow isn't that crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so but I like those choices those are strong choices but this is a crazy crazy story so I'm, I'm super excited we're doing it this week
0: yeah. So this week, we're going to be discussing the 1980 bombing at Harvey's Casino in Line, Nevada. And before we get into the details of this crime, we're going to tell you a little about where it took place in this week's segment of We Googled This City.
1: State Line Nevada is located near the border of California and Nevada and is around seven hours to the northwest of Las Vegas. I honestly didn't even know there was that much of Nevada, to be totally honest. So, according to the 2000 census, the population of State Line was only around 1,200 people. And this number actually fluctuates quite a bit during their busy winter and summer seasons because of the high number of rentals and hotel rooms that are used. But really, only about 1,200 people live in this town. In 2006, a dark comedy slash action thriller was filmed at the Horizon in Blue Resort Casino and Spa near Stateline. That film was called Smoke and Aces, starring Jeremy Piven, Ryan Reynolds, Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, Alicia Keys, and like 40 other people. Oh my Have you ever gosh, heard of that movie? I just watched this movie probably like a week and a half ago. 100% I was like I've never heard of this but then whenever I read like comedy action thriller I was like Mandy might have seen this one. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh yeah was it good? Well, actually I mean I didn't really watch it watch it it was like one of those things that you put on and then it's you just the fall background. asleep yeah it was at the end of the day at the end of the night and I just kind of fell asleep with it but I turned it on and I never have heard of it before that but no I didn't really actually watch it but I'm just surprised that I've even heard of
1: something that you mentioned in google this city <laughs> <laughs> what a good night for us <laughs> so Mandy, did you know that Nevada borders five states? Uh, it borders California and Arizona like we spoke about, but it borders three other states. And I know that makes sense because of where it is on the map, but do you know what those I other really three states are? I really hope you're not going to ask me. No, I, am, I don't. No. Can I tell you, I could have guessed maybe two of these, one of these I wouldn't. So I'll give you the two that are maybes. Utah, that makes sense, right? I thought that was that, probably around That Nevada. was going to be my, yeah, that's the only one I was probably sure about. Oh, <laughs> ready? Idaho. Definitely had no idea about that one. And the last one, which literally I had to pull up a map to look at because I was like, can't be true. Oregon. I don't know why. Did you think Nevada bordered Oregon? No.
0: Why do I picture Nevada being like way south of Oregon? (laughs)
1: apparently, <laughs> I know that's, I did the exact same thing because I was, I, it said Oregon. And I was like, mm, nope, don't trust this. Got to go check it. And then I looked and I was like, oh my gosh, is this, what is that thing called that you always talk about? The Mandela effect? Have we, have we discovered a Mandela effect? Did Nevada move up on the map and nobody told us about it? Where we knew I we forgot and we've been Mandela affected? I don't know. I just, I'm having a hard time. If you knew that, please don't rub it in my face because this was really a tough one for me. So lastly, in 1998, at the Heavenly Ski Resort, a man lost his life after skiing down an intermediate slope and hitting a tree. And that man was singer and politician Sonny Bono. And now you're wondering if we're finally at the end of Google this City. But don't worry. We're done, babe. I got you, babe. And there was no way of ending this without a stupid joke about that. I could not come up with another one. So I knew as soon as I saw his name, I was like, well, I've already ruined it. I know what's going to happen next.
0: (laughs) I think that was my favorite Google the city ever. Really?
1: I felt like it was a total gut. I'm glad it
0: worked out. Yay. (laughs) All right. So. The concept of gambling or games of chance, as they call them, has been part of the culture of Nevada since before it was even a state. In the mid-1800s, people actually traveled to what is now known as Nevada in search of gold, and they brought their games of chance with them. In 1864, Nevada was granted statehood and became the 36th state on October 31st of that year. That felt like a tongue twister to say that, so I'm so glad I made it through That's that That's pretty sentence. impressive. Yeah. In 1869, certain types of gambling were decriminalized in the state and very few changes were made to the gaming laws until 1909, when legislation that banned all gambling games passed during the progressive movement. Regulations on gaming slowly started to relax in the following years and certain types of gaming started to be allowed again. So this was mostly things like nickel slots that didn't really pay out a large sum of money, but they would pay out in drinks or cigars or sums of money that were less than $2. By 1919, there were licensed card rooms that allowed social games like Bridge and whist, which I don't even really understand that game or know what it actually is. Have you ever heard of whist,
1: Melissa? I haven't. I Whenever I read it through the first time, I was like... Whip? I I just could not. And then I was like, I don't even know a game called Whip. So why would I assume that it was Whip and not Whist? I've never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, it was
0: the 1920s. So I assume they had different (laughs) games. I don't know. I've never heard of it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in the 1920s, Reno became known as the gambling capital of Nevada. It wasn't long before these legal card rooms were starting to offer illegal games, and it wasn't really until the Great Depression that all forms of gambling became totally legal again in the state of Nevada. On March 19, 1931, Assembly Bill 98 was signed into law by Governor Fred Balzar, which made numerous games legal and put an end to back alley betting. This law was really the turning point that allowed the gaming industry to rise up and become what we know it as today, with Nevada being known for its numerous regulated casinos and gaming culture.
1: By the 1940s, the gambling business was taking off, and a man named Harvey Gross was one of the 10 pioneers of the gaming industry in the state. Harvey had originally been in the meat cutting business and opened his first retail store in Sacramento and then expanded to Lake Tahoe. In 1944, while living in Tahoe, Harvey decided to get into the gaming industry and he opened the first casino at South Shore called Wagon Wheel Saloon and Gambling Hall at State Line and Highway 50. He just wanted you to know everything going on there, where you could get to. Is it State Line and Highway 44? Nope, it's State Line and Highway 50. We will lay it all out (laughs) in the title so you can find it. It was a small casino with just six slots. Nearly 20 years later, in 1963, Harvey added an 11-story tower to his casino. It was the first high-rise building on the south shore of Tahoe. It has been said that Wagon Wheel Saloon and Gambling Hall is really what put South Shore on the map and turned it into a destination. It eventually became a multi-million dollar casino empire, and several other casinos opened up in the area, including big ones such as Harrah's. In 2001, Harrah's bought Harvey's Casino, and in 2005, Harrah's bought Caesar's. In 2010, Harris changed their corporate name to Caesars, and according to Harvey's website, they are still run by Caesars today. It currently has 740 hotel rooms and suites with either mountain or city view. It has all the resort amenities with seven restaurants, including Hell's Kitchen, Cinnabon, and Starbucks. They also have a novelty daiquiri bar called the Purple Zebra. It really looks like a lovely place from the pictures online, but we're not here to sell you on a vacation destination today. We're here to tell the tale of the time that a five-story crater was blown into Harvey's Casino when a large bomb was detonated inside.
0: The morning of August 25th, 1980 began as a routine day for Bob Vinson, who was a slot shift supervisor at Harvey's Casino. He had been in his office that morning preparing to start the day, and when he came out of his office to make the rounds on the casino floor, he noticed that a door was closed that was usually always open. He was curious about why this door was closed, and he walked over to check it out, and as he got closer, he looked through a window that was on the door and saw these two silver boxes on top of each other inside the other room. Bob asked the janitor working if he knew what it was or if this belonged to him, and the janitor said that it did not belong to him, so the two men inspected these boxes together and found a lengthy typed letter inside of an envelope on the floor near these two boxes. The letter was three pages long and had been typed on a typewriter, and it was addressed to Harvey's management. It was an extortion letter, and within the first line, it announced the existence of a bomb inside of these mysterious metal boxes. The letter was very organized and detailed, and it was actually broken up into seven different sections, which were stern warning, warning demands, instructions for delivery, conditions of the business transaction, attention, and a section that was titled to the pilot. Bob Vinson immediately contacted the casino security and the Douglas County Sheriff's Department. And within hours, there were bomb experts and FBI on the scene.
1: The three page letter was carefully studied. The first section was entitled stern warning to the management and bomb squad. And it outlined the importance of not moving this bomb for any reason. The letter said that the bomb was, quote, so sensitive that the slight movement, either inside or outside, will cause it to explode, end quote. And cautioned these police officials not to tamper with the bomb in any way because there were mechanisms attached to triggers and the bomb was obviously extremely dangerous. In the second section of this letter entitled, Warning, it was reiterated that the bomb should not be moved and no attempt should be made to disarm or enter the bomb. According to the letter, the bomb contained enough TNT to not only blow up Harvey's Casino, but to also cause damage to Harrah's across the street. I love so much that there is a... Warning... And a stern warning. They're like, just in case you yeah. missed it, that first one, we were serious. We're super serious. We're gonna warn you one more time. So in this section, the letter also suggested that the FBI actually evacuate and cordon off a minimum of a 1,200 foot radius around the casino and to keep people out of the area.
0: I thought that was really nice of them to let them know, you know, what a safe distance would be. Yeah, for, for sure. Bomb. They
1: definitely gave them all the details they could need. But it is interesting that they're like, if anything gets moved. So many people could die. You know what I mean? And then to be like, you right. should really give, it's, it's you're doing both things. You're like, I'm putting everybody at risk, right. <laughs> but also I'm going to give you, you know, 1,200, 1,250 feet minimum. So in the third section of this letter, they get to really the heart of the matter, and that's the demands. Whoever wrote this extortion letter was demanding $3 million, and they wanted it in used $100 bills, unmarked, unbugged, and chemically untreated. In return for the money, they would be given instructions on how to safely disarm this bomb. If anything was wrong with the money, they would stop cooperating and would not help them disarm it. Obviously, if this thing goes off, millions and millions of dollars in damage is going to happen. They're not going to be able to open up their casino. You're going to want to... You've you, you got to think, you know, what, what is the risk? What's the reward for helping them with this? So the next section talked about how the money was to be delivered. And this is where it really gets very outrageous and sounding more like a Hollywood movie. And we're going to jump right back into what those demands were after a quick break to hear word from this week's sponsors.
0: This Mother's Day, get your mom something you would actually want with StoryWorth. StoryWorth is a fun and easy way for your mom to share stories from her life with you. She'll be emailed questions throughout the year, and at the end of the year, all of her stories and any uploaded photos will be bound together in a beautiful keepsake
1: book. StoryWorth is great because the questions they ask go beyond the usual things like, what was your favorite subject in high school? And dig deeper with questions like, what's one of the riskiest things you've ever done? These kind of questions bring out those fun and entertaining stories that your mom may have long forgotten about. And I know we all feel like we really know our parents, but we really only know them since we've been around. But before us, there was a whole life we might not know about. And StoryWorth helps you get to know your mom before she was, well, your mom. For instance, last year I did this for my dad for Father's Day and found out that he grew up with an actual serial killer. Plus, you can email your mom her StoryWorth subscription
0: so she can start it at any time. It's a great gift to give someone you may not be able to see in person this year and something that you'll enjoy reading as well. It's the perfect way to stay close to someone, even if you
1: can't physically be close. Give your mom the most meaningful gift this year with StoryWorth. Get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com slash moms. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash moms for $10 off.
0: It's not always easy to make the right food choices, and sometimes you grab a treat and devour it and then feel bad about it and then realize you've already screwed up your diet, so why not just eat more? And that cycle goes on and on, and then nothing really changes because nothing changes. But with Noom, you can actually change your way of thinking because with Noom, no food is good, bad, or off-limits. And if you are already using something that you like, Noom can be used in conjunction with many pre-existing and popular diets. I love that Noom helps me get out of the diet mindset because it's not a mindset. It's a healthy and easy stick to way of life. I've been using Noom for about six months and it's amazing to look back on how my relationship with food has changed since starting the program. I'm seeing results I've never seen with past diets that I've tried and failed at before.
1: Noom is the perfect option for me because I wanna eat better and live a healthier life to feel better. It's not about a magic number on the scale for me. I wanna learn to make healthy choices easier and understand why I eat the way I do and why I turn to food when I'm in certain moods. I know when I do treat my body better, I'm in a better mood and my anxiety levels go way down and Noom helps me stay on track. When I've done mainstream diets in the past, it was sometimes hard to figure out the nutritional value of many meals, but Noom has one of the biggest and most accurate food databases available that makes it easy to track my meal habits, help visualize portion sizes, which is always really an issue for me, plus see calorie density at a glance. This is just one of the ways Noom makes tracking your meals easier, and we all know if it's easier or more likely to stick with it.
0: You don't have to change it all in one day. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, noom.com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's noo mcom slash moms.
1: Now back to the episode.
0: Before the break, we were talking about this bomb that had just been discovered at Harvey's Casino and the very lengthy extortion letter that was found with it. In the fourth section of the letter, the instructions for delivery were given and everything I'm about to say is quoted from the actual letter or is paraphrasing from the letter. So it said, The money is to be delivered by helicopter. The pilot is to come unarmed and alone and is to park as close as possible to the LTA building by the light at the Lake Tahoe airport, and the helicopter was supposed to be facing east. Then the pilot must get out of the helicopter and wait for further instructions, which would either be delivered by some random taxi driver, a private individual, or through a nearby payphone, and this would come at exactly 1210 AM. At that time, the pilot would be given further instructions and would have to use a strong or bright flashlight to shine around inside of the helicopter while the bombers looked on from a distance with binoculars to make sure that the helicopter didn't have any police or anybody hiding inside of it. The fifth section of the letter outlined the conditions of the business transaction and stated that these conditions must be followed to the letter and if there was any deviation at all, they would blow up the casino. They demanded that the media be kept in the dark about the bomb until after the money had been delivered and the bomb had been safely removed from the building. And there were further instructions for the helicopter pilot that included that the helicopter must have a full tank of gas and the pilot could not speak to absolutely anyone unless it was written in the instructions to do so. All of the channels on the radios in the helicopter were going to be monitored and the letter stated that, the maker of this bomb uh, was not going to be involved in this money transaction in any way and said that anybody involved was innocent and should not be arrested by the police while carrying out this money exchange. So it seems like they've thought of everything, really, as they're writing this um, letter. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I just love the idea that it's like, could be um, somebody in a taxi cab, or could be a random person, or <laughs> could <Right>. be <laughs> a person wearing a clown mask, or somebody could fall from the sky. You really just don't know. Just anyone that comes near you. I mean, isn't that crazy? That's I just love that they're like, we have three ideas. <laughs> Not sure right. which are going go It with. is crazy, especially
0: because of the length they've already gone to to plan out everything else. Like It's like, well, yeah. what, what's it going to be? But I guess it kind of makes sense um, yeah. from a criminal's mindset. If you try to think like a criminal, you're like, well, It's probably better to like confuse them so that they stay alert and stay, you know what I mean? Like stay paying attention. So, uh, yeah, but that was funny after like everything else is so planned in detail, but then this one thing, they're like, well, it could be any of these things that happen, you know? (laughs) So, if the instructions were followed, there would be six different sets of new instructions on how to disarm this bomb and remove it safely from the hotel and casino. And if not, the secret handling of the bomb, you know, would not be released. The sixth section of this uh, extortion letter was marked attention, and it explained that there was absolutely no room for negotiation and there would be no extension on the time frame. Everything had to be completed within 24 hours, and the bombers said they, after this contact, they would not be answering any questions and they would not contact the authorities again. The final section was to the pilot and it really had a lot of repetitive information about the instructions that we stated above as well as a little bit more details of the plan for this pilot. So the pilot was going to be making five different stops, none of which would be at an actual airfield, but the bombers promised that there would be plenty of lighting and mostly level landing sites, which as a helicopter pilot, I would have questions about what is mostly level Landing sites. It's mostly level, Mandy. Yeah, like mostly Where are you going yeah, like, <laughs> to try and have this poor guy land? Right. So the pilot was instructed to fly at a very low altitude, which was actually really dangerous when you consider the location where they were at. They're in the desert, yes, but there also is mountains there, so it's tricky when you are flying low in this particular area. There are mountains, and so it's kind of hard to say to give instructions to not go above a certain altitude when this pilot like has to operate this you know, aircraft safely, so he's not running into the side of a mountain. So uh, it was actually really dangerous, the instructions that he was giving to this pilot. So the bombers uh, warned the pilot also to not try and, quote, be a hero and to follow orders strictly.
1: After reading the letter and carefully inspecting the bomb, the FBI and bomb experts on the scene realized that what the letter said was true and that the bomb could not be moved at all. They quickly worked to evacuate the area that included several businesses near the casino and started brainstorming a plan for what exactly they should do. What they decided on was to break the two silver boxes apart with a quote-unquote shaped charge of C4 with the hope that the C4 would disconnect the detonator wiring from the dynamite inside. So I don't know what that means. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I actually looked into this a little more. I had
0: to go and like just particularly research like what that even meant because to me when I first read it I was like wait they want to use an explosive to disarm an explosive like that doesn't really like that doesn't really make a lot of sense right um but I guess no it is like that's the thing it's like it's a shaped charge so it's like meant to only be like the charge is only going to be directed at like one specific area I have no idea how bombs actually work so I don't know I don't really understand the logic behind that but that was kind of the idea that they would just like put this little explosion into this one area just to break these boxes apart and hopefully that process would actually disconnect the detonator wiring i don't know why no one was concerned that that would actually set the bomb off but i guess that's what i'm thinking like, <laughs> i guess that's just how bombs work i don't know anything about bombs thankfully um no one needs to worry about me doing anything crazy like that because i have no idea well your
1: google search now thinks you know a lot about making bombs yeah. so <laughs> good luck trying to prove that in court so the bomb was studied, photographed, dusted for fingerprints, and x-rayed in the meantime. A crowd was also gathering near Harvey's Casino, and of course, the people were made to stand a safe distance away, that 1,200 feet or whatever, but people started showing up and taking bets on whether or not the bomb would go off. I love that. You can take the person out of the casino, but you can't take the casino right. out of the person, I guess. <laughs> so investigators were on a strict time limit, according to this letter, and the more hours that passed, the more it became clear that they had really no other option or hope for rendering the bomb safe other than to comply with the demands of the bomber. They hope that somehow they'd be able to apprehend the suspect in the course of delivering the money that the mystery person was demanding. I think it's smart that the person said, hey, I'm not involved in the drop-off, you know, the person that's doing this. So those are all innocent people, whether or not that would be true or not. But it is an interesting thing to be like, you just need to follow these directions. I'm not even – I won't even be there, you know? Right. But just who is this mystery person? Who's behind doing this? Well, what police didn't know is that they were dealing with a highly skilled bomb maker and his multiple accomplices. The mastermind of the plot to extort Harvey's Casino with a bomb was a casino regular named John Burgess Sr. John Sr. developed a gambling habit in the mid-1970s following the death of his ex-wife. He spent the five years after her death playing blackjack at Harvey's and gambling away his life savings. By early 1980, John Sr. was around $15,000 in debt to the casino, which is around $50,000 today. He had been denied further credit from the casino.
0: John Sr. had always had a pretty tough life. He was born on March 13, 1922, in Jasberany, Hungary, at a time when the country was overrun by Germans during and after World War II. John Sr. got a job with the Counterintelligence Corps, which is the CIC, and this is the intelligence agency for the Allies in Russian-occupied Hungary. So while doing this work, he was actually captured by the Russians for working with the CIC, and in the spring of 1948, he was sentenced to 25 years of hard manual labor in Siberia. Wow. He actually served eight and a half years before he was released on July 4th of 1956. Three months later, John Sr. became heavily involved and even instrumental in the Hungarian uprising against the occupation and domination of their government by the Russians. John Sr. spearheaded the movement in his town of Ketchkameh. On November 4th, 1956, the Russians regained control of Hungary, and John Sr. was arrested for being a leader of the Freedom Fighters and was going to be executed on the spot, but after hearing him speak perfect Russian, they decided that he would just be jailed instead. In a stroke of pure luck for John Sr., just three days later, the Freedom Fighters actually overtook the town that he was from, and he was freed from jail. From there, he escaped to Austria and spent six months after that in Eastern Europe working as a Red Cross interpreter, and six months later, in late May of 1957, John Sr. actually arrived in the United States after a two-day-long journey. Back then, when people came to the United States from other countries, they had to wait five years before they could become citizens, but as soon as John became eligible for citizenship in 1962, he got it. He actually had to forfeit his Hungarian citizenship in the process. A short time later, John Sr.'s girlfriend named Elizabeth came to the United States and obtained citizenship after the two of them were married. And the couple settled down in Fresno, California, and had two sons named John Jr. and James.
1: John Sr. was a very hard worker that never took a day off. He worked seven days a week doing landscaping work. He eventually opened his own landscaping contracting business and built parks and did landscaping for federal government buildings, military housing, military golf courses, and more. As a side business, he actually owned a restaurant and a vineyard, which really does sound like he was working 24-7. I don't even know how you have enough time to do all of those things. John Sr.'s business ventures were successful, and he actually earned a lot of money and became quite wealthy. Then in 1973, John and Elizabeth got divorced, but Elizabeth stayed close by and lived in a trailer on John Sr.'s property. Elizabeth actually took her own life by overdosing on Valium and alcohol in 1975, leaving 16-year-old John Jr. and 12-year-old James behind. According to the boys, John Sr. wasn't a very nice father and focused most of his attention on making money. He rarely spent time with his sons, and when he did pay any attention to them, it was to physically and verbally abuse them. After Elizabeth died, he became a completely absent father. John Jr. left the house and went off on his own at just 16 years of age, and James, who was only 12 at the time, had to take care of himself, including getting himself up and ready for school. This is the time when John Sr. started gambling all of his money away. Another thing John Sr. was apparently involved in was doomsday prepping. In 1978, he purchased $5,500 worth of canned goods, which is equivalent to spending $23,000 on black beans today. He also invested money in three steers and 700 pounds of meat, including two pigs, three lambs, lobsters, and more. John eventually developed a prostate condition and had about half of his intestines and part of his stomach removed due to damage that he quite possibly sustained from beatings before he came to America. These medical problems eventually prevented John Sr. from working. At some point, though, he began dating again and he had a living girlfriend named Ella Joan Williams. They had a unique arrangement in which Ella paid the utilities and John Sr. provided the food. In John's own words, he was a gigolo. Prior to making this bomb that he had planted at Harvey's casino, John had no criminal history in the US, not even a traffic violation.
0: Ella Williams was going through a divorce at the time when she met and moved in with John Sr., and she had been married for 19 years and had four children with her husband. Ella was born in 1934, and although she was very intelligent, she dropped out of school in the 11th grade, only to return to high school as an adult and graduate with an impeccable record. She was described as being charming, witty, intelligent, reliable, trustworthy, and conscientious. She went on to study humanities with a specialization in Spanish at California State University at Fresno. And after she graduated, she started working as a juvenile group counselor at the probation office in Fresno. Three years later, she was actually promoted to the position of being a probation officer in 1981. Ella decided to apply for law school and she was accepted into San Joaquin college of law in Fresno and was supposed to start classes in September of 1981. The judges and other officials that worked closely with Ella as a probation officer thought that she was a great person, and she, of course, had no criminal record, and she was really good at her job. That is, until John Sr. came into her life and eventually roped her into his plan to extort Harvey's casino. We mentioned earlier that John Sr. had a gambling problem, and he was really in a lot of debt, and specifically he was in debt to Harvey's Casino, where he was a preferred customer that often reserved private suites at the hotel. When John first started going to the casino, it was really just sporadically, but he would play these gambling games for hours upon hours when he would actually go there. Then in 1978, his restaurant burned down and he was paid $355,000 in insurance money, which would be like getting $1.5 million today. And every penny of that settlement went into funding John Sr.'s gambling habit. In October of 1979, John Sr. was so deep into his gambling that he actually rented an apartment in Lake Tahoe just so that he could be closer to the casino. All told, John Sr. himself estimates that he lost about $750,000 at the hotel, which would be equal to $2.3 million today.
1: Once the well had run dry for John Sr., he became really desperate and depressed. He reached out to his youngest son, James, and said to him, quote, Son, I am broke. I have lost everything. I have nothing left to live for. I'm going to build a bomb, and I need your help which is a quote, but a very strange uh, list of things that you just told your kid in a row. Yeah, yeah. I'm not doing well, <laughs> yeah. gonna build a bomb. That's, <laughs> I don't know. That's a And very, I want uh, you to help me. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. like
0: a whole, that's a lot, especially when you're like not even really close with your dad, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. So James actually agrees to help and then enlists his older brother, John Jr., to help their dad on his plan to blow up Harvey's Casino. Despite not even having a close relationship with his father, John Jr. agreed to help and he was even somewhat excited that his dad would even ask him to help at all, which actually made me really, really sad. Me too. So John Jr.'s experience as a petty thief would come in handy for John Sr.'s plan, which started with stealing over 1,000 pounds of dynamite from a Pacific Gas and Electric building. They stole 18 cases of dynamite. Once they had the explosives, they got to work on figuring out how to construct the bomb. Both Jr. and Sr. enjoyed taking apart electronics and learning how they worked, so they began working on a bomb that had a maze of switches and triggers. At first, John Jr. really didn't have much faith that his dad's bomb plan would work, but once the bomb actually started coming together, he realized that this was serious and tried to talk his dad out of going through with this plan. John Sr., though, was really adamant about finishing the bomb and moving forward. The bomb that John Sr. ended up building was quite extensive and complex, It had about a thousand pounds of dynamite inside, and it was enclosed in a metal box with the lid screwed shut. Every screw was attached to wires and contacts, meaning that removing the screws would just detonate the bomb. John Sr. also installed switches to detonate the bomb if the lid was removed. There were eight different fusing systems. One was on a timer, another was an anti-motion switch, and another was a float mechanism. There were layers of rubber and metal inside the box meant to block any kind of drilling or inspection entry attempts. If anyone would make contact with these layers inside, the bomb would go off. The two boxes holding the bomb were designed to look like a quote-unquote business machine. It was five to six feet long and three feet wide and looked like two steel boxes stacked together. The dynamite was contained in the smaller box on top. Also, whenever I say these things, I do my hands the whole time. Like, I really understand what's going on. Yeah. I'm like, doing yeah. two boxes I know.
0: <laughs> with the yeah. hands. Yeah. So, along anybody speaking. who's listening along probably <laughs> also doesn't know what any of this means. Um, we don't yes. either. We're just reading what the research says, uh, you know, the sources say, but I don't have a clue how bomb works or how any of this makes any sense at all. It just sounds very terrifying that if you unscrew one screw, this whole thing could just blow up.
1: It sounds terrifying while you're building it. Like, what if you didn't have caffeine that day? Things could really go awry very quickly. (laughs) So after this bomb was built, John Sr. asked his two sons to participate in planning the bomb at the casino. It was at this point that the two boys said they wanted out of this plan and didn't wish to participate any further. feel like you're a little far into it now. At this time boys but while they were loading the bomb into the van it actually rolled over john jr's hand which meant he was useless anyway which was exactly what he wanted i'm kind of interested to know if he like actually did it on purpose i would have if i was <laughs> like 100 percent. i would definitely do-
0: take a broken hand over being involved in anything that had to do with like actually putting a bomb somewhere
1: right but like i would have asked somebody to roll over my hand two months before right. <laughs> like, when this was starting <laughs> So John Sr. did not give up, though, and he decided to ask two of his employees from the landscaping business to deliver this bomb for him. These two men were Terry Hall and Willis Brown, and both of these men had criminal past and agreed to assist John Sr.
0: Willis Brown was born in Arkansas in 1931. After the 10th grade, he enlisted in the Air Force, and he left school at the age of 15. He somehow made it through the screening process, but when the military found out that he was 15 when he enlisted, they ended up discharging him. But by that point, he had already served two years. I have so many questions about how you get through the military and they don't realize that you're only
1: 15. I know. I'm like, do you only have three hairs on your chin? I I don't understand how this happened. How did you figure this out? So many things
0: in this story. I'm like, well, this was a different time. This was a very long time ago. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is definitely doesn't seem like that would happen today. So at the time of this story, Willis was recently divorced and had three children that were all at least 16 years of age or older. And he did labor jobs and worked for Granite Construction Company, Elms Creek Project, and he also worked as a landscaper for John Senior's Landscape. Business. He had a pretty long rap sheet that included auto theft, assault with a deadly weapon, and escape, and he also had several drunken disorderly arrests and traffic violations. One of Willis's daughters was married to Terry Hall, and they had a two-year-old child together. Terry was also a laborer, and he was part of the same union as Willis and also worked for John Sr. doing landscaping. Terry had two felonies, one for burglary and one for forgery, and he had other convictions for driving under the influence, receiving stolen property, and a hit and run resulting in death or serious injury. So it was these two men who agreed to help deliver this bomb.
1: Sometime before 6 a.m. on August 25th, 1980, John Sr., Terry, and Willis arrived in Lake Tahoe just before dawn and drove to the casino. John Sr. pointed out the door that he wanted the men to take the bomb in through, and then the men checked into the hotel under the fake name, Joey Aveto, and they also gave a false address. That night, the men wiped down the surfaces of the hotel room to remove their fingerprints, and they put on white jumpsuits and left. On August 26th, the three men parked across the street from Harvey's and stole a license plate from a random car nearby and attached it to their van with rubber bands, which I actually thought was pretty smart to do. (laughs) (laughs) I hate thinking like a criminal whenever I'm like, oh, nice. That was a very good idea. (laughs) I don't mean that. You shouldn't commit crimes, obviously. So John Sr. had thought of really everything and had constructed a special cart to actually tow the bomb on. They tied the cart to the back of the van and pulled into Harvey's and parked in a construction site parking lot. Terry and Willis took the cart to the entrance of the casino while John Sr. went inside ahead of them. The bomb was leveled on pieces of wood on top of the cart, and they placed a gray cover over it that said IBM. Remember, this is supposed to look like some computer or business thing, so this is their disguise. Meanwhile... In the year 2020, you could not push in some giant machine-looking thing and be like, this is computer-related. They'd be like, absolutely not. You should have an iPad, and that's as much as you should be able to bring in here. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So the two men pushed the cart with the bomb on it right through the hotel lobby and onto the elevator and took it to the casino offices and left the bomb in the hallway along with a three-page letter. But John Sr.'s plans didn't end there. He had already coordinated an elaborate method for the delivery of the money he was demanding, which we started getting into a little earlier in the episode when we talked about the demands that were actually laid out in this letter. The plan included a helicopter and very specific instructions about where the pilot was to drop off this money. So that brings us back to the point in the story where the FBI has realized that this bomb is serious and that they need to comply, or at least appear to comply with the bomber's demands if they had any hope of finding out how to disarm this bomb. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> so as
0: we mentioned before, the bomb squad devised a plan to use a shaped charge of C4 to break these two boxes apart, with the hope that the C4 would disconnect the detonator wiring from the dynamite. I actually asked a friend who is like into sciency things, and they told me that that's really not a thing. Like that wouldn't actually work, and that's just not how things work. But that's what they planned to do. Since they were on a very tight time constraint, they came up with a plan to deliver a small amount of money. Some of the sources said it was $1,000, others said it was 5,000, but they were going to weigh out this money and put weights in it to make it feel like it was $3 million. The helicopter pilot followed the instructions that were outlined in the letter and he first flew to the Lake Tahoe airport and waited for further instructions as he was told. A nearby payphone rang, so out of those three options of what could happen, a taxi, a random person, or a phone call, It was actually a phone call, and it rang at the exact moment the letter said it would, which was at 1210 a.m. When the pilot answered, he was told that he had three minutes to get the helicopter airborne, and he was to follow Highway 50 West at just 500 feet above the elevation. After 15 miles, he was to start looking for a strobe light on, on his right side. The strobe light would be triggered by a radar gun aimed in the helicopter's direction, and it would go off when the helicopter was in range. Doesn't all of this just seem so complex and complicated, like that one person masterminded all of this and set all of this up, like they set up a radar gun for a strobe light that's going to go off when the helicopter gets into its range. Like this does not seem like a real thing that actual people could be capable of doing.
1: I would have like come up with steps one through two and then been like, you know what, just just fly it wherever we'll we'll figure it out. Just. Throw the money down. I don't care. i like, are yeah. going to figure it out. <laughs> I've used my brain too much at this point. It is crazy because it also feels like you're setting yourself up for failure. What if these things don't happen? Is the whole thing null and void? I don't understand. Yeah.
0: So once the strobe light turned on that the pilot was looking for, he would only have four minutes to land the helicopter because the strobe light was set to automatically go off after four minutes, which... That's really convenient. Like, why four minutes? That doesn't seem like enough time to get a helicopter on the ground. All of it. You're giving them 24 hours, but but they're like only three minutes. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So the letter actually also said to, face, uh, to land the helicopter facing south and to look for, to get out of the helicopter, walk... South and look for an envelope that would be nailed to a tree about two hundred feet away, and that would contain more instructions. This all
1: sounds like Dwight Schrute giving directions to his beet farm. Honestly, like go right. past <laughs> and two cows and stuff. It's, it's like crazy. a
0: scavenger hunt, right? Like it really is. Like it's like what in the world? Like it's crazy. So, however. Things actually went sour when the pilot was unable to see the signal light from the ground. And after flying around for several minutes, they had to abort the plan and the money drop wasn't actually able to happen. So the FBI and bomb experts really had no choice now. They had to figure out how to disarm this bomb on their own, right? So they didn't deliver the ransom money or the extortion money. And so now they know they're not going to get instructions from the bomber on how to disarm yeah. this bomb. So now it's just up to them to figure out how to to take care of this problem safely. They're on their own. So on August twenty seventh, at around three forty five PM, they attempted to defuse the bomb with the C four, but it was a failed attempt and the bomb actually exploded. Just the way John Sr. had designed it to, and just the way me, with no knowledge of bombs at all, thought that it would. Yeah. (laughs) So this big explosion caused $12 million in damage, which would be like $40 million today. And of course, it sent debris flying everywhere. And this is including cash and casino chips and playing cards. And if you looked up from the ground level, you could see TV sets that were swinging on electric cords and toilets that were hanging by pipes. And thankfully, nobody was killed or injured because, as we said before, the FBI knew to evacuate the area and give a far enough distance for people to stay away. And so that wasn't actually an issue. But when this bomb actually exploded, the crowds that had gathered in these nearby areas and that were kind of watching from outside, they all cheered. Everybody thought it was just great, which I guess I can understand. That would be quite a sight to see. So John Sr. and his accomplices found out that this bomb had gone off while they were listening to the radio. And John Sr. became very, very upset because, of course, now the bomb has gone off. He didn't get the money. And now, like, there's no reason for them to give him the money because the bomb has already exploded. So he is kind of, he's out a bomb and he's also out $3 million or whatever he thought he was getting, you know, out of the whole deal. So he was really upset and said that he no longer had anything to live for and that the only possible reason to keep on living was to make another bomb. Because the first one went so well. Yeah, right. So John Sr., John Jr., Ella and James were all stationed in areas that were around where the money was supposed to have been dropped off. And when this plan fell through, of course, they all left. So on the way home, this is super crazy on the way home, John Jr. was driving and John Sr. was a passenger and John Jr. got pulled over and he actually was issued a speeding ticket. And in another bizarre coincidence, Ella got into a car accident on her way home and she had to be dropped off at a hospital anonymously. And we're going to get right into the aftermath of this bombing after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors.
1: I don't know about you, but the days feel a little longer lately. So I've been looking for something to do to kill a little time throughout the day and that's why I love Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that's a lot of fun while also giving you a way to exercise your brain by completing different levels and uncovering new levels of a story. What makes it a lot of fun for me that it is an individual game, but one I can compete with with family and friends. I got my daughter to start playing. She was actually able to help me out on a recent level by switching out my fiends to complete the goals.
0: You can collect additional fiends as you go along, and the more levels you work through, the more you can update your fiends and make them work for you even more. Plus, Best Fiends is more fun the longer you play, so it keeps you coming back to see what's
1: new. It's so helpful that internet is not required to play, so with my husband working and my daughter doing online school, I can easily take five minutes after lunch and work on a level without slowing anyone down. My favorite time to play though is at night for a few minutes while I have the office playing in the background. It's just a nice way to relax at the end of the day. There are what I call challenges within the challenges where you can win things that will help you with different levels. Plus, Best Fiends updates every month so it always feels new and not like playing the same old game every day. I'm on level 498 now and can't wait to see what the newest updates bring. Best Fiends has thousands of levels
0: already with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or
1: Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The days are longer, but it's also gotten hotter outside, way hotter, and I wanna stay active, but I have about a three minute window a day when that's even possible here in Florida. So riding my bike outdoors for exercise isn't always possible right now. So I am super thankful for OpenFit and being able to access it from anywhere, like inside my house, with the AC. OpenFit offers 350 brand new live workouts every single week, and you can choose from things like bar and Pilates classes, cardio, strength training, yoga, even guided walking and running sessions.
0: I don't know about you, but if I can sneak in even 15 minutes of exercise a day, I feel a lot better. And I love that the OpenFit streaming classes offer classes that start at just 10 minutes long, which helps me increase my energy, put a little pep in my step, and overall feel better inside and out. You can also work out with amazing trainers like Andrea Rogers, who is the founder of the worldwide sensation, Extend Bar, or the
1: newest workout, Rough Around the Edges, with six of the coolest stunt women in the business. OpenFit has changed the way I work out and texting our code MOMS to fifty fifty fifty, 50 You can join us on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Right now, during the OpenFit 14-day challenge, our listeners get a special extended 14-day free trial membership to OpenFit when you text MOMS to 50 You will get access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information, totally free. Again, just text MOMS to 50 Standard message and data rates may apply. And now back to the episode. Before the break, this massive bomb had just been accidentally detonated inside the Harvey's casino, causing millions of dollars in damage. After their plan to extort $3 million from the casino failed, John Sr., John Jr., Ella and Terry all took off and headed home and John and his son were pulled over for speeding and Ella, who was in a separate car, was in an accident and showed up at the hospital anonymously. Back at the bomb site, though, the FBI were working hard to examine the bomb and what it was made of. Agent Chris Rone said that the bomb was, quote, "...virtually undefeatable, a pretty sophisticated, quite complicated piece of machinery unlike anything we'd seen before, or anybody in the bomb disposal business had ever seen before." End quote. Agent Rone said that his colleagues had considerable experience with bombs, but they had never dealt with anything of that size. The FBI said the bomb maker had to be somebody that had great knowledge of bombs and explosives. Following the bombing, the casino wanted to reopen the gambling areas that weren't damaged and get their business back up and running. I find this so interesting, but the hotel actually built a wall with a picture window in it so that gamblers could watch the FBI process the scene. I'm thinking yeah. this is a genius. That's weird. It's but it's a genius way to bring in business. I mean, I don't want to go to a place that's just been bombed, but how cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's definitely a really great way to bring in business and to get people wanting to go there and gamble in your casino, but like That is really not a thing, right? Like, that wouldn't happen today. And this is another example of a thing in this case where I'm like, that would not happen in today's world. Like, the FBI definitely doesn't usually want to be having an audience while they're working, you know, and doing that. I just feel like it's so strange. And, like, that's usually not a thing. They usually actually try not to have onlookers while they're processing a crime scene, I feel like, in today's world. So that just seemed a little odd to me that they were – it was basically like an attraction you know that you could go there and watch the fbi process a crime scene but i just don't feel like that's a thing that would happen in today's world
1: this was the 80s this was a time of clear pepsi there were no rules anything yeah, I- really <laughs> <laughs> So Harvey's actually fully reopened on May 13th, 1981, which is crazy because this bombing just took place six months before toilets hanging from, you know, from plumbing. I don't even know how to say that. Toilets hanging, TVs hanging, and they were able to get it all back up and running in just six months.
0: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So in an effort to solve this crime and figure out who had built this bomb, Harvey's offered a $500,000 reward for information. Hundreds of witnesses and 500 suspects were interviewed by the FBI before they finally got a break in the case when the owner of a local motel called South Lake Tahoe's Ballahoe Motel contacted the FBI about a suspicious van that she'd seen the night before the bombing. She gave the FBI the license plate number, which ended up tracing back to John Jr. And the motel owner told the FBI that she only wrote the plate number down on this van because one of the men from the van made what she called untoward comments at her. And so she jotted down the license plate number. Officials used the license plate number to find an address for John Jr., But when they got there and they realized that he was this young guy living with five roommates in a messy house full of beer cans and there was a lot of marijuana around, they figured he probably wasn't their guy because he didn't really fit the typical bomber profile and definitely not for a bomb of this caliber. Unfortunately, John Jr. had already shared the secret with his girlfriend and had told her all about the extortion plan and how his dad had come up with this whole idea. And then when their relationship ended, that woman started dating a new man and she told the new guy about what John Jr. told her. And it was actually the new boyfriend that alerted the FBI, which all of this is so crazy that this is how Right. They ended up getting caught. You know, this is so many things that had to happen Mm -hmm. in the order they happened in for them to actually be caught this way. So from there, John Jr. had surveillance on him and the FBI was quietly working to gather evidence against him. In the process, the FBI learned about the speeding ticket that John Jr. got when they were leaving that day. And that led them to information about Ella's car accident as well. And this was all proof that all of them were near the bombing site that day. The FBI knew that John Sr. was the mastermind, but they called John Jr. to testify in court in front of a grand jury, and his father, of course, told him to just simply lie on the stand and said that there was no way for the government to prove that he wasn't telling the truth. Unfortunately for John Jr., this was terrible advice, and he actually did get caught lying, and he was arrested for that. And once he was in custody, he actually gave a full confession to the FBI and His brother James made a confession a very short time later, and each of these boys' confessions took around 12 hours, and their statements were both 50 to 60 pages long. Whoa.
1: So John Jr. and James had every detail of their confessions corroborated. They admitted to helping to steal the dynamite from a construction site and said that their father had been working on the bomb from June to August of 1980. Their father planned to go to Europe to launder the money after he received it. John Sr. and Ella were the ones who hand-packed the dynamite into the bomb, making sure every inch of it was full of as much dynamite as would fit. Ella was also the one that typed that extortion letter while wearing gloves. James alleged that he went to John Sr. and Ella's house one night, and they told him the letter had been typed up and that he could not touch it because they didn't want any fingerprints on it. The FBI later verified that the letter had been typed on a brother typewriter, which is the same brand that Ella owned and had lent to a co-worker numerous times. The prosecution also asserted that Ella must have been the one that composed the letter based on the way it was flawlessly worded. She had a shining academic record and John Sr. spoke English with an accent after coming from Hungary. John Jr. and James said that after the bomb exploded, they met with their dad who told them what they should say to police, basically telling them what they needed to use for an alibi. John Sr.'s alibi was that he drove his van to a certain area and that van broke down so he had to hitchhike back to Fresno, and this would give him a reason to have been in that area. Following Harvey's bombing, John Sr. actually stole another 600 pounds of dynamite from a construction site and planned to use it to make another bomb, this time with a $5 million ransom. He contemplated planning it at Harvey's again, or possibly a Bank of America in San Francisco for a $12 million ransom. John Sr. actually went to the bank to case the area, and he had been buying more switches as well. With the new plan, John Sr. promised everyone involved a $400,000 payment, which would be about $1.1 million today, which was, of course, encouragement for everyone to keep their mouths shut about it. But let me ask you, John Sr., You didn't pay me last time. Why am I going to go try this again? And we got nothing last time.
0: Yeah. Well, they didn't get anything last time because nobody got anything last time because it didn't work out. So, yeah. So what is their actual motivation to help you try this again? That doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. So John Sr. was finally arrested in August of 1981, and he was interviewed four or five times. And he also knew that his sons were being interviewed in the months leading up to his arrest. On August 11th, 1981, John Sr. asked the FBI if he could go and visit his mother in Hungary. And he actually provided them with a doctor's note and explained that his mom was very, very sick and she was very old. And he wanted the FBI to let him go and visit. And the FBI said, Sure, you can go and visit because as of right now, you are not charged with or arrested for a crime, which is so crazy to me because the FBI actually is on to him and like they know that most likely he's the one responsible but they're just saying like we're this close but like yeah you can go ahead and leave the country like it's so crazy to me that he actually got permission from the fbi to leave did he get permission or was it
1: more like we can't hold you you know what i mean like well
0: that was yeah it wasn't really permission you're right that was a terrible no but i I get what you're saying though because it does sound
1: weird that it's like well we we plan to arrest you in the next week or so. If you could just hold on to your ticket and just buy it in about a month, that'd be really great because we can arrest you then. But right now, yeah, funsies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what they said. They said that since
0: he was not under arrest, of course, he could leave and go see his mom. So uh, John Sr. actually did not end up going on that trip. And then on August 14th, 1981, literally just three days later, he was arrested and charged with perjury after he actually perjured himself in front of a federal grand jury. So he was released on bail. But he was arrested again two days later, along with Ella, Terry and Willis and John Jr. and James, who of course had been working with the police, were not arrested on the same charges. So on August 19th, 1981, all parties of this crime were indicted. The charges between them included conspiracy to attempt extortion, interstate commerce in the pursuit of unlawful activity, interstate transportation in the aid of extortion, and the transport of explosives. Ella was also charged with typing the extortion letter. Willis cooperated with the FBI and gave a full confession in which he said that he was recruited by John Sr. and promised that he and Terry would be paid $2,000, which would be $6,000 today for just simply delivering this bomb to the casino. After the Harvey's bomb went off, John Sr. called the men and told them to lay low and that he was working on another bomb and he warned them not to tell anyone about their role in the bombing or they would be, quote, eliminated. After Ella was arrested, she had a chance to make a statement, but instead she said, quote, why should I tell you anything? You know it all already. I don't want any deals. I don't want any probation. I just plan to plead guilty and do my time. Dang, Ella. Yeah. I mean, I kind of understand it. Like... From her point of view, like, if you're caught, you're caught, you know, like, I feel like that would be me in that situation. I would just be like, well, there's really nothing, you know, there's nothing I can do. Like, that's what happened. Not me. I'm going to What do you want to you know? know?
1: Get me a deal? I'll tell you what yeah. you want to know. I'll tell you everything. I've got even more yeah. details.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Terry didn't give a statement either. And after John and Ella were arrested, police searched their house and found about 20 switches that were identical to the ones that were used in the Harvey's bomb. And they also found about 600 pounds of dynamite, which definitely suggests that they were going to go forward with a plan to make a second bomb and try to extort either Harvey's again or another company. So that's really crazy to me that like you would do this and that that would happen like your bomb would actually go off but then you're like oh that's fine I'll just make a new one that's just so crazy
1: or it could be like when you and I have ordered things on one of the food delivery services and we think we order like um you know one lime but we actually order or 10 limes and we order 10 pounds of limes and be like whoops didn't know I had (laughs) 6,000 pounds of dynamite I was just looking for six this is so crazy it happens to me all the time Yes. (laughs) So John Sr. and Terry had a joint trial in federal court that began on October 12, 1982. The prosecution alleged that John Sr. was deeply in debt to the casino, so he planned to extort money from it, and in order to do so, he built a foolproof bomb. John's defense admitted that he did construct the bomb, but it was because he was under duress, and John testified that the mob made him do this so that they could collect the insurance money. They said that John Sr. was just a dupe and that he didn't know the package he was delivering was a bomb. The defense said that a mobster named Charlie is who contacted John and who had him beat up by two mob men to force him to carry out their plan. And of course, none of this makes any sense whatsoever. That's just a crazy amount of nonsense to be like, he built a bomb, but yeah. the mob. <laughs> <laughs> but the mob is my new saying. So, fun fact. Even though John Sr. and Terry had a joint trial, they each had their own attorneys. And Terry's attorney was actually a man named Larry McNabney. And we just did an episode about him a month or so ago, which is actually how we found out about this case. Haley helped research this case this week, and she brought this one up when she was you know, researching about Larry McNabney, this crazy bomb trial, or this crazy bomb that happened. And so that's where we got the idea for this episode. So John Jr. and James both testified in this trial. On October 23rd, 1982, after deliberating for 10 hours, the jury found John Sr. guilty on four charges, extortion, interstate travel, and aid of racketeering, that old charge, conspiracy, and transportation of explosives in interstate commerce. Terry was found guilty of conspiracy and transportation of explosives in interstate commerce, and aiding and abetting, but he was acquitted on two other charges. John Sr. was sentenced to 20 years for extortion, five years for racketeering, five years for conspiracy, and 10 years for transporting explosives. In 1985, John Sr. was convicted in state court on bombing charges and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And in 1993, he was transferred to the state prison system. His extortion conviction was eventually overturned on appeal, but the rest of his convictions remained. In 1996, John Sr. died of liver cancer at the age of 74.
0: Since James and John Jr. helped the police, they were only convicted of conspiracy to commit extortion, and they were both sentenced to three years of probation. In 1982, Ella was convicted of attempted extortion, conspiracy, interstate travel and aid of racketeering, and she was sentenced to seven years in jail. But in 1984... All of her convictions were overturned because she wasn't allowed to confront the witnesses in the trial. And I'm not really sure what that means. I didn't actually have a chance to look it up. So if we have any law savvy people, I'm thinking of Channing Channing. here, who's our lawyer friend. Yeah, someone please let us know what that's all about. So she actually had her convictions overturned because that was the reason given. She wasn't allowed to confront the witnesses. I don't know if that's actually a thing uh, that people are allowed to do or if that's a loophole in the system. But yes, please explain it to me if you know more about that. So she was supposed to go back to trial in 1985, but instead she pleaded guilty to being an accessory and she was sentenced to just two years and three months, which coincidentally was the same exact amount of time that she had already spent in jail. So she was paroled uh, out of jail just from there. Willis ended up pleading guilty to one of four counts in part of a plea agreement and was sentenced to just seven years, and he was released in April of 1986. To this day, John Sr.'s Harvey bomb is one of the most unique IED devices the FBI has ever seen. And in 2009, Special Agent Thomas Monal said that even though IEDs now use more advanced electronics, it would actually be very difficult to build a bomb tougher to defeat than Harvey's bomb. In August of 2009, the FBI used a mock-up of Harvey's bomb for training purposes. So that just goes to show you how sophisticated this device was and how it really was undefeatable to the FBI, and now they use it as training material. So this is the craziest story, and it happened before both of us were born, which makes me feel less like you're older than me and
1: I'm super young, because now I can just say, like, neither one of us was alive (laughs) when this happened. (laughs) I feel so much better now. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, yeah, crazy, crazy story. And it just is it is amazing to me. The whole motivation for this was money, right? Because obviously, they didn't want people to die. They tell them how far out they should be and all this stuff. But the thing that really blows my mind was after it didn't work, and you put all this time and now eyes are going to be you know, people are gonna be looking for this person making a bomb. You're like, you know what, let's build a new one. Let's just try it again. That was our practice round. Let's build up another or blow up another building and see if I can get out of my $50,000 of debt, which in his lifetime, all the money he had made isn't that much. You know what I mean? I didn't feel like his debt was so much for him, even for the time compared to what he had been making. I don't know. It's just crazy to me Like to jump to that. It was like, whoa, really? Like feel like we could maybe play scratch-offs or something and see how that went for a while. Yeah, see yeah. What <laughs> But such a crazy story. Thank you so much, Haley, for your help with this. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it's something different, but we really enjoyed it. So it's, it's nice you have more ability to be silly and jokey in these things, I think, when nobody dies. It's helpful yeah. to
0: me. Yeah, for sure. When nobody dies. I feel like I love these episodes me where too. no one actually died uh, because we can kind of do our – we can do our own thing a little bit more, and we can kind of
1: yeah, give we want our to be sensitive input
0: so. a little yeah. more, and yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So we hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and um, of course, we're going to move right on to our usual last thing before we go, and um, we have kind of a different one this this week. Uh, of course, we're all in quarantine. We all know that we're quarantined, and so we thought that we would ask our listeners about some of the things that people have learned or found out over the past month or so while we've all been stuck in quarantine. So we are going to read uh, a few things that our listeners have sent us about stuff that they've been doing over the past month. And maybe they will either inspire you to do something or maybe it won't. And maybe you'll just be like, hmm, that person is really an overachiever. So, uh, <laughs> so we're gonna get right into them. So Melissa, do you want to read the first
1: thing? Sure. Oh, and I'd like to just preface this by saying the only thing I've learned this entire quarantine is that there's been like a couple Netflix shows that I've liked. And so I found those. Middle Ditch and Swartz being one of them. And uh, Parks and Rec has a new show coming out, a new episode on April 30th. So that's exciting. But that's literally the extent of things I've learned. So Don't feel bad if you haven't learned anything. It's totally fine. Oh,
0: I haven't learned anything. Yeah, yeah. I (laughs) haven't (laughs) learned anything. These aren't like crazy (laughs) ones because
1: I know sometimes it's hard whenever you're like, oh my gosh, that person's cooking, you know, five course meals for their family every night. I can't do that. Don't feel bad. These are just fun, whatever ones. So. And, and
0: if you are that person who sent that
1: in, I'm sorry we didn't pick that. <laughs> yeah, I skipped right on by that one, let me tell you. No, I'm just kidding. But no, it's, it's whatever works for you, whatever works for you. So uh, the first one's from Anita in the Facebook group, and she said that she's been sending cards in the mail. Picking and choosing cards for each person's personality has been very therapeutic for me during this time. My way to outreach without having to leave the house. Before, I would send an email or text, but I like this old school method. I love that. That's such a great way to keep connected with people, to send them cards and letters and stuff. Because my gosh knows we're all looking for anything to come in the mail every single day.
0: (laughs) So yeah, so I love this idea. And it kind of reminds me of the idea that we had a few weeks ago where because of course, we're local to each other. And we live close enough to drive and a way that we could stay connected and keep our kids happy and connected um, with each other is kind of to just write letters or draw pictures or do whatever and get out of the house, drive them over to each other's mailboxes and put them in. And then we don't have to interact. We don't have to do anything. We just take a drive and drop something in our friend's mailbox. So that's a really good idea. If you are uh, living close to friends that you miss and can't see and you want to do something like that, it's a really fun way to kind of get connected again and, and get you out of the house also, which I feel like is
1: I think that's really the whole reason more we important. did it. I was like, I have to leave my yeah. house. And you're like, just put a picture in my mailbox.
0: Yes. I was like, here, that's your reason to get out. Yeah. So if you need a reason to get out, get with a friend, hook up with a friend, say that you want to write each other silly letters, and then you're going to drop them in each other's mailboxes. And then you don't have to see each other in person face to face, but you can both get the experience of having something in your mailbox, which I think is really exciting and fun. Yeah, for sure. So the next one is from Mandy V, and she says... I discovered how much energy my kiddo can have and I'm exhausted. He is 11. Bless his heart. He loves his own voice. Really? I finally discovered my mother's (laughs) curse. (laughs) I feel this one so hard because uh, I have boys and my oldest is 10 and a half and my little guy is seven. And yes, they have so much energy. I'm so exhausted. Um, It's 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 crazy i can't keep up with my kids i don't know i always thought that i would be fine keeping up with my kids but it's so hard i just don't have the energy i can
1: keep up with the kardashians because that involves me on my couch but i cannot keep up with the kids that is a whole different yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole different problem i agree So I'm going to go to the next one, and this is on Twitter. This comes from a social distancing nurse, and it says, I love this one. My husband and I love the show Chopped. He has started narrating everything he cooks. He even deadpans and acts like he's being interviewed. And this is her quote. So I look in the oven, and my potatoes are burnt. I have five minutes to present something to these judges. And I just... That sounds like the most fun thing in the entire world to do, like Jennifer Garner does pretend cooking show, something like that, where it's just so dumb. I love ideas like this. This is this made me so happy. But she posted a picture too of like her little kid, and she's like one of the judges just poops himself or something. It was so, so yeah, cute. I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that too. Okay, and then for one more. Okay, so this is from So Writes Rachel on Twitter, and she says. I'm pretending to host a cooking show called One Pan Wonders. This isolation has thrown me into a bit of a funk, but narrating my cooking of a one pan meal while listening to songs like Tainted
1: Love perks me up. I'm just here for the serotonin and sweet potatoes. I love it so much. <laughs> I We're going to have to figure out like a contest or something fun for people to send us their like home cooking videos, like dumb ones, because that's... Yes. Would that yeah. not be the most well, fun? yeah. We have to...
0: I mean, yeah. You've seen me cook meat pie on live oh video, gosh. so I just... I want everyone else to do that to make me feel less bad about doing what I did. (laughs) I totally already
1: have pictured mine. I've got it in my head. I know we're going to do it. So listen in for next week. If we remember this, we'll come up with some kind of contest videos to send or something. I don't know. It'll be fun. But these are great ideas. I love these so much. It's a great way. It's something to learn, something new to do. It's awesome. I love it. Good way to keep yourself entertained.
0: Yeah, definitely. So uh, if you're listening along and you want to play along with us for Last Thing Before We Go and you want to tell us what you've been doing in quarantine, you can comment on our post about this episode this week. The one that you're supposed to be sharing, right, with your friends so you can win a free skylight (laughs) frame. Well, you you can. It's an option. <laughs> <Posting>. you, don't, <laughs> you don't have to. But that uh, is a reminder. Yes, you can share the episode yes. artwork this week about the episode and win a skylight frame possibly. So, yeah. So if you want to do that, uh, but you can also comment on this post and let us know what you're doing in quarantine. What have you learned? Have you taken up any hobbies? We definitely want to hear from you guys. So let us know all about that. And I think that is it. This has been a pretty Long oh episode gosh. this week. Can't wait this to is edit. a lot of extra talking. Yeah. This is a lot of extra talking of Mandy and Melissa that people don't usually get. So here we are congratulations we've we're, talked we're a lot sorry? yes <laughs> we've talked a lot and now we've come to the end uh maybe thankfully for you so uh, so we will definitely see you guys next week uh same time same place and with a new story have a great week bye thanks so
1: much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode